It is a wonderful, wonderful joy to be with you. And uh, thank you once again for the invitation and the opportunity to share together, to worship with you as a community, and to be part of, uh, in some small way, the journey of the bridge. And it's just a joy uh, to be able for a few moments to share the Word of God. And it is my privilege to kick off a brand new series today. We're doing a series called David, A Man After God's Own Heart. Now, for some people in the room, you immediately have an image and a story because you've been around for a wee while. And you've been in the church for some time. And when I say David, a man after God's own heart, you're already connecting dots right where you are. But there may be some people in this room and you don't know who David is. You've no idea who we are talking about in this context. And over the next few weeks, we're going to touch and lean into David's amazing journey. And it is quite spectacular as a journey. And hopefully within that, we will see some incredible lessons, not only in his life, but incredible insights into the amazing God that he served. And as we've been singing about today, is still the same today. The God that, that raised up David is the God who is in this room today. And most incredible idea. And uh, so it's my job to kick off the series. And I'm going to be talking today about growing in obscurity. Uh, hopefully it'll be better than it sounds. Uh, Growing in obscurity, and I'm so excited to share that with you. So if you've got a Bible and you want to follow a reading, I'm going to read from a part of Scripture in the Old Testament part of the Bible, 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. Now, if you are finding it or while you are finding it, let me just give you a little bit of important context. This will set us up. Um, We're about to meet a man called Samuel. He's a sort of a a judge. Now, not a judge in a legal sense, but a sort of a spiritual leader sense. And Samuel's a very important man as a spiritual leader and a prophet. God speaks to Samuel and he sends him to the house of a man called Jesse. Now, the reason Samuel is going to Jesse's house is because the current king of Israel, a man called Saul is really losing his footing with God. He's really spinning out of control. Some bad stuff is starting to happen. The people asked for a king. God reluctantly gave them a king, this first king called Saul. And Saul started really well, and then it started to go south a little bit. It all started to slip and move, and some bad decisions were made. By the time we get to this bit of the story... God has made up his mind. He's had enough of Saul as king. Not as Saul the man, I don't think, but as Saul as king, and he wants a new king. And so he's about to set up the journey for this new king to come into play. So that's the sort of background. If you, if you, if you don't really get that, then this passage doesn't make any sense at all. But hopefully that will connect a few dots for you. So verse 1. 1 Samuel chapter 16, it says this, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil, and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. Samuel and Saul weren't getting on at this point. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. 
Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab. Now, Eliab was the firstborn of, of Jesse. And he thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Boom. Wow. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then sent, had Shema pass by. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all your sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy and a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. Some people make an impact on our lives for a moment. Some people, it seems, can make an impact for a lifetime. And then there are some individuals, for whatever reason, make an impact for generations. And David is one of those people. Though, when you read the biblical story now, I mean, you will be shocked at some of the detail. He's far from perfect. In fact, his story is littered with imperfections, vulnerabilities, and some seriously edgy moments. And in fact, when we think of David, we think of a man not only tremendously called by God, but a man really genuinely with feet of clay. He, he, is, he is just an ordinary man, if also a special man. But it's really interesting that when the Bible describes David, it describes David in two dynamic ways, two amazing ways, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. In the Old Testament, David is described as being a man after God's own heart. And in the New Testament, he's described as a man who served the Lord in his own generation. So two incredible statements about David, which should guide us as we read. So when we're dealing with the ups and the downs, we should be guided by these two statements. Statements that say he's a man after God's own heart. So when we see him having edgy moments, we've got to remember that and remember that about each other as well. But also, ultimately, ultimately, he was a man who served the purpose of God in his generation. And for that, he is commended. Born the eighth son of Jesse. He ended up becoming 
not only the king of Israel, the second king of Israel, but some would argue the greatest king of Israel. In fact, modern Israel today has the star of the eighth son of David, of Jesse, on their flag. And and there's an incredible affinity towards this amazing man. He unites the nation of Israel that was tremendously divided at the time, and he reigns as king for 40 years. If this, if, if, as if that's not enough, uh, some of you will know the Psalms in the Bible. There's 150 Psalms or songs in the Bible. David is ascribed about 73 of those. So he was also a creative person and loved to worship the Lord. Amazing facts. All of those are actual facts from the biblical text. And yet when we see the beginning of David's life, None of those things look remotely possible. I'm so glad that our history doesn't determine our destiny. Amen? That our beginnings don't determine our end. Come on now. And when you look at David in 1 Samuel 16, and you didn't know the rest of the story, if you arrive from Mars, and this is your first introduction to David, you could not imagine what he is about to become. And what he is about to do. And what he is about to achieve achieve in God. In fact, his introduction to us is, is fairly unspectacular. Jesse is asked by Samuel, any more sons? Seven sons parade in this beauty pageant in front of the man of God. And God rejects all of them. He doesn't reject them as people. He rejects them as king. He rejects all of them. And Samuel has to ask any other sons. And did you notice the words of Jesse? Now this is his father speaking, not some stranger. Listen to the words of David's father. Here's what he says. There is still the youngest, but he's tending the sheep. Even a generous reading of that text is a bit edgy. Why wasn't David at the party? Why wasn't David invited? Why wasn't David there? Why doesn't Jesse call David by name? In fact, the Hebrew text is a bit stronger than that. It would read, there is still the youngest, but behold, he is looking after the sheep. It's almost an afterthought from Jesse. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, David, yeah, he's out there somewhere. Yeah, my eighth son, he's out there somewhere. And when we're introduced to David, we notice from this incredible little insight, and don't rush past this, we notice this incredible insight that David is introduced to us as unnamed. His father doesn't even call him by his name. Secondly, David was unwelcome. He wasn't brought into the party. Why didn't Jesse bring all of his sons to meet the man of God. But he only brings the first seven and David is left out in the fields. And did you notice the awkward moment they must have had? Samuel says, we're not sitting down till he comes. It's like, you're all going to wait here till this boy arrives. And then did you notice the sort of implication that David was undervalued? He's tending the sheep. 
And in fact, in, the, in that sort of idea and culture, and this is one of the beautiful paradoxes of the scripture, shepherds were almost sort of regarded as people that really didn't need to be that clever, didn't need to have that much about them. It was the sort of job you did if you couldn't do anything else. And isn't it funny that God, one of the number one pictures that God describes himself as is shepherd to us. There's a beautiful irony there, a beautiful paradox in that story. We're introduced to David, he's unnamed, he's unwelcome, and he's undervalued. And the, the sense of being undervalued is emphasized a bit later. We've been, we've been singing in our song about David uh, and Goliath. And if you read a little bit further into 1 Samuel 17, you'll meet David on the battlefield. And he takes provisions to his brothers who are already there, uh, ready to fight the Philistines. Uh, and David arrives with the provisions. And his older brother, his oldest brother, Eliab, the one who was first rejected, by God as king. He says these words. Listen to these words carefully. He says to David, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now look at that. I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. Earlier on in the story, David has been described as having a heart after God's. So if you read the story honestly and openly and with, without rose-colored spectacles anywhere near your Bible, you are picking up at least one of two things, possibly both. You're, you're picking up the fact that David grows up in a home that is incredibly passive towards him. There's no sense of excitement or investment into this young man. He's the youngest and he's out there somewhere. But you might also want to read into this that he's living in an environment that is hostile towards him. The language of his, of his brother is one of absolute hostility. What are you doing here? Where are those few sheep? Everything about Eliab's comment is hostile and negative and condescending and superior. David has grown up in a world where at best they're passive and at worst they're hostile. And Jitty grows. He grows in such a way that the Lord sees him and the Lord picks him. When people leave him out in the field, God says, hold it, hold it, Samuel. There's another one. Why? Because God has seen something in David. David continues to grow in Passivity. David continues to grow in hostility. In a world where it seems no one is expecting him to become anything, David somehow is still growing. He's still going for it. He's still leaning in. And in this respect, this introduction to David is so important to me and you. Because actually he demonstrates that we can grow in the most difficult of circumstances in a way that attracts the favor and blessing of God on our lives. That even when the circumstances we are in are not perfect, even when they're far from perfect, even when the circumstances around us are militating against us, we can still grow. And David teaches us by way of introduction. This is just the introduction. By way of introduction, David teaches us that actually what's inside is much more important than what's outside. 
that my environment, I am environment, what's inside me from a Bible worldview point of view is actually much more important than the environment in which I live. Now, the environment's important. It's, it has a factor. It, has, it makes an impact on all. I'm not ignoring that. But when we lean into a biblical worldview of our lives and our spirituality, it's an inside-out trajectory, not an outside-in. It's saying to us, and this is not positive psychology, this is biblical theology. It's saying to us that if we can get a hold of truth and have that truth living in us on the inside, that you can actually defy the outside of your world. Your world says, this is who you're going to be, and the truth inside you can defy that and move beyond that. The world says, this is how far you're going to come, and you can move beyond that. The world says, you are the least, you are the littlest, you are the smallest, you are out there with those few sheep, you are conceited, you are selfish, you are wicked. The world can say all of that, and yet there's something inside you that's bigger than that moment, that's bigger than that estimation, and it's bigger than that opinion. And your future is not determined by your postcode. It's not determined by the people around you. It is determined by the attitude within us towards the God who loves us. I believe that. Now, you can, you can put that wherever you want. You can say amen, or you can stick that in the bin. But that's a biblical worldview. And we can look at David and just say, wow, amazing man. He must have achieved amazing things. But the beginning of David's life is absolutely militating against everything he's going to become. He's not been set up for success. He's been excluded from success. And God still manages to get him where he needs him to go. Come on, that's the God we serve. That's the God we've been singing about today. You know that God, the past God, today God? This is this God. And he can do it in the 21st century for you in the same way that he did it for David. I believe that passionately. Let me say this, that David teaches us that who is more important than where when it comes to growing. Who you are is more important than where you are when it comes to growing. Now, thank God, if you're in a wonderful place of blessing and prosperity and support, that's going to help, right? That, that, that's a great thing. And that's ultimately and ideally what we want for everybody. In this church, we want to create a great environment where you can grow. In your family, we want to create great environments where we can grow. In our businesses, we want to create great environments where people love the work, Right? So that's the idea. That's what we're aiming for. We want to create a great where. But here's what the Bible is teaching through David. Even when the where sucks, the who can outgrow the where. Come on. It's a powerful idea. That actually, it is the who that determines, not the where. And over the years, I've met a lot of people. Please forgive me. I hope this doesn't sound in any way condescending or patronizing. I really do not want it to be sounding like that. But I've met a lot of people over the years who have blamed their were for who they are. 
Now I hear that, I hear that. Now don't throw anything at me. But a compassionate Bible worldview pushes back on that. And here's what it says. Your were does not determine your who. Your were can be small. Your who can be big. Your were can be poor. Your who can be rich. Come on. Your were can be against you. Your who, God is for you. Come on. It's the gospel. It's what we believe. This is, this is not just Jesus, you know, saving me from my sin. This is Jesus transforming my context, transforming the world I'm in. The old Pentecostals will talk about redemption and lift. The idea that when Jesus comes into your world, he lifts everything. Everything starts to rise. Is it perfect? No, of course not. Is it everything we'll ever want? No, of course not. It's, it's messy life and it's difficult life. But actually, there's a belief system here that David taps into. And I believe it's one of the keys that causes David to rise to becoming what he becomes. Because he, through his whole life, he has to deal with the, the where and the who. And some of his greatest leadership later on is demonstrated not from the palace, but in the wilderness. Because it's about who, not where. And you can be in an amazing church like this and not grow. And here's what we do. We blame where. And I want to push back on that. Because growth is a decision that we make based on the things we believe, not from the place where we live. Come on. You still love me? It's very, very quiet. I'm not, I'm not feeling the love so far. But it's true. It's true. And the proof that David grows is a little bit later on in the passage we read. In 1 Samuel 16, if you nudge a bit further into the rest of that chapter, Saul, the king's under a bit of pressure and he needs some help. And one of the things that's going to help him is finding a musician that will come and play for him. It's an interesting story. Read it for yourself. Uh, and they're on the search for this. And listen to these words. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 18. Here, here's what it says. It says, one of Saul's servants says this, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem, who knows how to play the harp. He is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well, oh, and he's fine looking, and the Lord is with him. I note that. I have seen. Easy to miss. Easy to rush past that in the story. Why? Because we're, we're desperate to get to the Goliath bit of the story where, you know, David does his thing with the slings and the stone and, and wins. But actually, it's the detail in chapter 16 that's going to determine the victory of chapter 17. Come on. It's this stuff. I have seen What's the servant of Saul saying? He's saying, he said, I've seen a young man who is living an outstanding life in an ordinary situation. 
if, if I'm right and David's world is at best passive and at worst hostile, then this servant of Saul has seen a young man thrive in a context where he has no right to thrive. But he's not only thriving, he's caught the eye of this servant of Saul. And did you notice the detail? I mean, this isn't just, yeah, there's a kid down in Bethlehem can strum a harp. It's like, look at the detail of this statement. The man identifies four ideas about David. He identifies, first of all, David's competence. He knows how to play the harp. Now, that's a bad translation, actually. The word harp's not in the text. It's, it's put in there by the translators because we know that David could play the harp. But a literal translation is, he is skillful in playing. I like that. He can't just strum, he's skillful. That points to competency. David, whatever, whatever this servant has seen, has seen a young man who, when he plays the instrument, he plays it with competence. He's not just strumming at it, he's skillful at it. A competent young man. Wow. Now remember where he's growing up. I'm not sure he was sent to music lessons in order to learn that skillful harp playing. The second thing that's noticed is his courage. The servant of Saul describes him in the NIV as a brave man and a warrior. Literally in Hebrew, a man of war. And it's interesting, that's a phrase used of God himself in Exodus chapter 15. God is described as a man of war. And the context is the Lord defending the rights of his people. So when he's described as a man of war, it doesn't just mean he's bloodthirsty or he wants to kill people. It means he's got a sense of integrity and righteousness about him where he wants to defend the rights of God's people. There's something going on in this young man. He's not just brave, but he's got a sense of justice about him. He wants to do something that reflects this courage. The third thing that the servant of Saul sees is that he's clever. He says he speaks well. Again, not a great translation in the NIV. A, a more literal translation would be prudent in speech or to speak with discernment and intelligence. Doesn't just speak well, but he speaks intelligently with discernment. He's a clever, clever man. And look at the fourth one. It was the big one right at the end. And the Lord is with him. That's his character. So the servant of Saul sees a young man, he sees his competence, he sees his courage, he sees that he's clever, and he sees that he's a man of character. In a world that at best was passive and at worst was hostile. Come on. David is growing in spite of his world, not because of his world. And he's caught the attention of the servant of Saul. And I love this idea that David excelled in the ordinary. I don't know if you noticed in our verse there, it also throws in he was fine looking. But there's an interesting little, if you read this story, there's a contrast. Because King Saul, head and shoulders above everybody, that was one of the things that made him literally stand out. His physicality. He looked like a king. Remember when Eliab walks in, the oldest brother? Samuel said, ooh, looks good. And God actually has to rebuke him and say, what are you looking at what his looks for? I don't look at what he looks like. I'm looking at the heart. And when we're introduced to David, twice we're told he's a good looking young man. But if you notice 
his summary, the summary of the servant of Saul, four to one, it's issues of substance over style. God's not really impressed by our style. Forgive my language. His head is not turned by sexy. But his heart is moved by substance. Are you with me? It's substance that gets his attention. Note how he summarized four things of substance. One issue of superficiality and style. And David grew when he had no right to grow. And he comes as an inspiration to us. And it's easy to lose all of this ordinariness when we get to the next chapter where he's killing Goliath and where he's held up as a superhero sort of thing in Israel. And we forget the fact this is a young man who is growing up in a world of best passivity and worse hostility. And yet he grows. And as I look at David, I'm thinking, well, if he can grow, I can grow. Come on. If he can do it, I can do it. Are you with me? All right. Let me draw this to a close. What does David teach us in all of this? David says to me and you in the 21st century, we've been singing about the God who was and the God who is. So let's talk about the principles that were and the principles that are. David says to me and you, give your best where you are. That's it. What I turned up this morning for that? Absolutely. Because if we can give our best wherever that were is, we will grow. You will grow. 100% guarantee or your money back. Seriously. I'll throw out a challenge to every one of you. Genuinely. I'll give you my email address and you can take me on on this issue. I am so confident that this is a biblical world changing principle that I am telling you, if you go into work, if you go into your world, whatever your world looks like, and you make a determination Every single day, I'm going to give the best. Whatever it is I have to give, I'm going to give my best. I guarantee you, you will grow. You will be a bigger person. You will be a better person. You will be a stronger person. Or will life reward you all the time? Not always. Will you get back a good reward for your best? Not always. Sometimes you get the mucky end of the stick, even when you give your best. But even when the mucky end of the stick is thrown back at you, you're still growing. You're still growing. And if you will make a determination that Jesus deserves my best, I'm going to give my best, and actually there's no other way to live but to give your best. If you turned up this morning, and it wasn't matter what songs we're singing or what style of song, and you turned up this morning and said, I am going to give my best. You grew. You walk out of this room bigger. Honestly, whether you had goose pimples or not. Whether you felt the Holy Spirit or not. Whether you like my sermon or not. You've grown. Because it's not about where. It's about who. It's about the attitude that we have. And we, there will be Christians today in this country in the deadest of dead churches. And they'll walk out of that cold, miserable building bigger. 
Do you know why? Because they turned up and they rocked it. They turned up and they gave their best. And David gave his best to sheep. In fact, he delivered those sheep from the lion and the bear. Who would risk their life for sheep? Who would throw themselves into the pathway of a lion or a bear? I don't know if you've ever seen a lion on the prowl or on an attack position. I've been on safari and seen a lion in, in, in attack mode. It is terrifying. A bear on its hind legs is massive. And David went toe to toe with both for sheep. And here's what the Lord said. If he can do that for sheep, maybe I could trust him with people. If he can do that for sheep, maybe I can trust him with a kingdom. And some of us are waiting for the perfect moment. Listen, it's never coming. Get over it. It's not going to come. Genuinely, I want you to be encouraged. Not discouraged by that. The perfect day you're waiting for, when you're going to arise and be your best, it's not coming. I'm definitely not feeling the love now. (laughs) Extraordinary is when we do ordinary things every day a lot. When we do the ordinary really well a lot. That's extraordinary. Extraordinary is ordinary with a bit of extra. Right? You can do that. That's what David did. Don't read David's story with rose-colored spectacles. That he was plucked out of obscurity by the hand of God and swept into the kingdom. No, no. This kid had to learn to give his best when, when actually it would have been easier to neglect his world. Second principle David gives us, we're coming to a close, use what you've got. It's deep, isn't it? Really deep. Use what you've got. I meet so many beautiful Christians and they're constantly asking for more. And I want to say to you, I hear that. I want to I stand with you and believe for that. But listen, use what you've got. Use what you've got. Because if God can see you using what you've got, whatever what you've got looks like, and what you've got might look spectacular, or what you've got may not look very cool, it doesn't really matter. Use what you've got, because if he can trust us in the using of what we've got, then maybe he can give us some other stuff. It's a, Bible, it's a world principle in the Bible that if I am faithful with little, before we give our children bank cards, they were on cash economy only. If you can make cash work, you get a card. If you can't make cash work, you're not getting anywhere close to anything that looks like plastic. Are you with me? Use what you've got. What have you got? Not, don't focus on what you don't have. Look at what you do have. Here's the third thing. Whatever you do, giving your best, and whatever you've got and the way you use it, remember this third idea. David learned this. Do it unto the Lord. Do it unto the Lord. 
He will see it if nobody else sees it. He sees your attitude as you go to work if nobody else sees it. If the boss is ignoring you, he's not ignoring you. He sees that we're using what we've got and we're giving our best, even if no one on planet Earth notices. He sees and he will notice. And let me say this to you. Listen, listen carefully. David wasn't invited to the party, but God got him there. Ultimately, the Lord has the power to get you wherever he needs you to be. What he needs me to be is just willing to get up every day, breathe in and out, give him the best and use what I've got. If I get up every day and I say, Lord, I'm going to give him the best today and I'm going to use whatever you've given me today, whatever that looks like, and I'm going to do it right here, right now. I am giving the Lord every single chance to get me to where he needs me to go. And men may say no, people may say no, circumstances may say no, but it's not down to them. Ultimately, if God can make sure that the kid on the hill with the smelly sheep gets to the party, and moments later ends up being ushered into the presence of King Saul to play his harp, then he can get you wherever you need to go. Our responsibility is not to worry about where we're going. Our responsibility is to give the best of who we are, where we are right now. Let the Lord take care of tomorrow. Come on, let the Lord take care of the party invites. It's my job to wake up today and go, I'm going to give my best. I'm going to do it right here. I'm going to do it unto the Lord. And I'm going to not worry about what I haven't got. I'm going to use what I have got. The greatest king that Israel ever saw, his journey begins with the words, there is still the youngest. And behold, he's tending the sheep. And David went on to become an incredible influencer for God. Why? Because he grew in the obscurity and gave the Lord an opportunity to do something amazing in his life. Does that make sense to you? Would you stand with me? Let me pray for you. There are moments when the Lord steps into our lives and does something instant and amazing and transformational and miraculous. And we believe that in this church. But the Bible also teaches us that the Lord is invested in the ordinary, the routine, the mundane, the everyday. The stuff that people don't think is important, the Lord sees as important. And wherever you are, the Lord sees you. Whatever your postcode, the Lord is with you. Whatever the circumstances that are for you or against you, David speaks to you from thousands of years ago and he says, you can grow. 
if you lean into the Lord, if you trust in him, if you give your best where you are, use what you have and trust him with the journey that's beyond your control. David says to me and you today, the Lord can take you to places that at this moment are absolutely improbable and even impossible. But David had a heart after God. And that's the number one factor. A heart after God positions us in the hands of a God who can do the impossible. And so, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters right now. I know that many of them will be in circumstances that are not easy, circumstances that we would like to change, circumstances that even in some cases are working against your purpose for their life. But Lord, we thank you that wherever we are, whatever our postcode, whatever our world looks like, you are with us. We've sang about that today, Lord. You're faithful. You're with us. You're in us. And Lord, we look to you. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters that each of us will make a decision today wherever we are, that we will give our best. And each of us will make a decision today, wherever we are, that we will use what we have. And that each of us will make a decision today that, Lord, the stuff outside of our control, the stuff that's in tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that, we will trust you to get us where we need to be. And Lord, I pray that you will give us a heart after your heart so that in us and through us, you will be glorified. So Lord, may your blessing be upon my brothers and sisters and may each of us, wherever we are, grow in love and in service for you. In Jesus' name, amen.